Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and I've got another fantastic artist here this week, Andy Gill, founder member of Gang of Four, one of my favourite uh, bands. Gang of Four have got a new album out, Happy Now. You've just heard the opening track of this show, One True Friend. Uh, welcome, Andy. Hi there, yes. Good to be here. Can you tell me about um, uh, One True Friend, uh, the album Happy Now, what led up to that record? Well... I think basically I've been, uh, you know, working on various bits of pieces, various ideas. Uh, I had a number of kind of demos on the go. I think basically one day I just woke up and went, oh, it's time to make a record, I think. <laughs> so I thought, right, okay, got my own studio. So uh, it was a case of well, how am I going to go about this? And I think the first thing I decided was that I was going to work with co-producers um, because in the past, I've tended to do all production myself. Uh, the kind of the, the rationale being, I produce all these other people, 
um, it makes sense that you know I produce my own records. But I think I just realised that there's a kind of false logic to that. And when you most need other people, it's kind of when you are trying to figure out your own ideas uh, and when you most need sort of commentary from other people and input from other people. So that was kind of the first thing that I realised that I would do. So I ended up with a sort of short list of people that I thought would be good to work with who sort of became the... Uh, co-producers and I'm really glad that I did it that way and also that side effect of that is that it uh, makes the process faster because in the past there's you know especially if if you end up on your own in the studio for any period of time uh, which you do it's easy to be distracted it's easy to to go oh I've done my VAT return or to just like find a creative barrier and decide to go and watch the news for half an hour. You know, it, it, it's really easy to be distracted if you're on your own. But if you're, if you're working with other people, you can't really because they're there to work with you and you, that's where you have to be. And um, I mean, I, that sounds silly, but it, it's a sort of, it adds another level of discipline that um, that maybe wouldn't be there otherwise. So you, uh, and what I ended up doing with, with this record is, I would, for some reason, I was getting up really early, like sort of, well, early for me anyway, uh, like six or something, and <clears throat> getting a cup of tea and going straight in the studio. Uh, and um, I'd sit and work on a song. You know, it's quite, it's quite nice, especially in winter and everything. When it's completely dark and and quiet, and you can just kind of concentrate and just work on a song on the on the, the words or the tune or whatever it was or and then the co-producer would turn up at i don't know 10 30 or something and i'd already done like hours of work and got a whole load of progress done and then we work all day till about you know seven or eight and so it's a really long day and um uh and you, you sort of you get so much done and and you could feel the momentum and you can feel and you could feel what you'd achieved and and that in itself is incredibly positive for the process. So you you know you, you sort of see how much you're you're kind of achieving, and that mm. that in itself. I mean, I'm not talking about the songs at all here. I'm just talking about the process, which is quite funny. But I don't think people often do talk about the process. But of course, everybody does it differently. And what I'm describing is so different from thirty, forty years ago when people would turn up really late in the studio and sort of hung over and, you know, and, and, and be, there'd be so much time wasted. I think that's, so this is the voice of experience talking after, <laughs> after having wasted so much time, you know, it's sort of like important to kind of get on with things and feel you're, feel you're achieving things. Yeah. Cause you, in terms of this sort of fa- phase of the, the gang of four, you really do seem to hit that groove of creativity and, and, yeah. and consistent releasing of material these days um yeah getting there i think this record was very sort of purposeful so yeah i guess that's another way of saying what you just said mm. so deliberate and pur- purposeful and thought through i mean with the the previous studio record uh, what happens next uh it, that was just got a record in transition you know obviously mm. 
John King gone, Jayla, new singer, yeah. you know, that kind of, well, actually, when I started the record, I didn't even know who was going to be singing, you know, and I kind of, for a minute, I thought it was going to be a collaborations record. So Herbert Grunemeyer was singing on it, Alison Mosshart was singing on it. And then <clears throat> midway through that record, I kind of realized that Jayla was the singer, hmm. uh, which is very unlike, which is very different to this record where I kind of knew what, knew exactly what I was working with, you know. So with a song like Change the Locks, it really kind of also embeds that sort of electronica mm. element to that. Is that is that kind of um, a consequence of being sort of studio-based where yeah. you can kind of experiment using kind of all the tools that you have in the studio? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think um, what I want on, you know, I mean, we've got various sort of samplers and stuff that generate those sort of sounds live. And mm. I don't, feel any particular obligation to be you know like a straight old-fashioned rock band guitar bass drums i don't feel an obligation to be that thing in the late 70s that's what we had and i didn't have the faintest idea how a synthesizer worked or what you were supposed to do with it and i didn't particularly want to but you know I'm, i'm not um restricted to any particular palette of of um instruments or ways of going about things i think that my feeling has always been you can sort of go whichever way you so wish uh a lot of the things that i that i like that i hear now are i mean for example let's give an example i mean like for example the that kind of um weird wobbly bass sound that you get on trap records and um uh grime and stuff you know i mean i just find that an attractive sound you know i don't think i'm breaking any rules in particular uh, by using that i mean and the way that worked was thomas and i would kind of work out the the bass part and i would kind of leave holes in it where i could shove in an electronic bass sound so some of it's played some of it's like programmed i mean i've sort of done that with the drums for for years, really, um, drums on hmm. Gang of Four Things are frequently a combination of played in studio drums and programmed sounds slash drums, whatever. Uh, yeah, that, that's just the way so that, I've, that I've been doing it. But although you kind of were talking about that that rock genre, I guess, and and not certainly not conform to, mm. to it these days. But even in the early days of you know Gang of Four. You, you didn't conform to that at all, even though they were kind of traditional rock instruments, the way that you played it and the, the output of that was not in the traditional mm. rock sensibility. No, I suppose not. Um, yeah. I mean, it, traditional in the sense that it was mm. guitar based drums, but um, yeah, I mean, what, what, what came out wasn't, um, didn't particularly sound like anything else. No.
What was it like in that late seventies scene in Leeds? We, did you have many much contact with mm. other bands at the time, or did you very much feel kind of on your own and, and looking outwards? There were one or two bands. Um, I've got what they got. There, there was a, a local Leeds band who I think I think were called SOS. I vaguely remember, but mm. I was talking to somebody else from from Leeds a couple of days ago who's slightly younger than me who who's a writer from the guardian you know we were talking we were talking about leeds at that time and as i described it as being you know that i've got some photographs of mm. me and some of the mecons wandering about in the street and the street is looks like it's been blown up i mean literally it it looks like a photograph from the somme it, it you know when, when you see leeds now it looks like an extremely presentable place and uh, it's a completely different world. Everything seemed to be crumbling apart. You know, it was, um, it was, um, gosh, yeah, it's pretty rough. Uh, I think that was kind of reflected in a lot of the ideologies of the day and, and the prevalence of the remnants of the national front and the, thriving british movement mm, mm. And, and the and the kind of various and the violence that kind of uh existed around that and and between that lot and the and the students in, in particular the art students and the musicians and there's that kind of famous there, there's there's that pub in, in leeds called the fenton oh, yeah. that um a lot of us used to collect in so, you know, the Delta Five, the Mekons, the Gang of Four, Scritty Politi, Soft Cell, we, we'd all be in that pub. So, you know, musicians slash artists and homosexuals. So um, it was it was a magnet for um, far-right groups to come in and, you know, throw a few glasses around and um, stuff like that. Damaged Goods, which mm. debut singles... Yeah. You kind of almost came out fully fully formed. Was it sort of a quick process to identify your sound and find find your voice? I don't think it was actually. It was, um, I mean, just a very quick chronology. It, I mean, I think you know <clears throat> the, the first. So, so John King was uh, uh, bo- both of us were at uh, Leeds University Fine Art Department, uh, and we used to kind of muck about. I mean, I'd have my uh acoustic guitar and i'd kind of you know we'd, we'd kind of just muck about kind of writing songs some of them mm. some of them silly some of them semi-silly some of them sort of serious you know we used to do these kind of spending you know our students very often have quite a lot of time on their hands and we'd often spend an afternoon sort of playing a very long game of chess but at the same time writing songs that, that's sort of how it started and then in the summer of 76, uh, he and I went and stayed with someone in downtown New York, uh, Mary Harron, who neither of us knew, but was a friend of a friend. And she wrote for New York Punk Magazine, and she later became a famous film director. But at the time, she was writing uh, for New York Punk Magazine. And and she would take us basically to CBGBs and stuff. So you'd be standing at the bar having a drink with John Cale and Joey Ramone and and stuff like that. And and I think the thing that sort of totally impressed me was how sort of ordinary all of that was. And 
and you know that thing that you know these weren't special people that people sort of like you um with some ideas and you know who happened to have got into music happened to have got into bands so that very much inspired me that this is not something that you had to be particularly talented to do that <clears throat> that you could actually anybody could do it so coming back from there to leeds it's like okay let's uh, let's be serious and let's, let's actually start this band which is what happened and so then the very first gig was not f- till may the following year may 77 so there's quite a lot of time there working on stuff but then from may 77 right till actually i don't know exactly when damaged goods came out probably about uh, probably about at least a year later i would think but it took time to where you know i've got a tape of that first gig and it's quite sort of punkish you know in the sense that it doesn't have that kind of funkiness that sort of classic Gang of Four is known for. We're still very much feeling our way, you know, and I'm very much kind of working out what it is I'm supposed to be doing, right. uh, what it is I think I should be doing. I don't think there's anything particularly, you know, you can listen to that tape and you think, well, yeah, it's okay, it's fine. Well, you know, I don't think there's anything that jumps out as being, you know, it took time from that point to work out what was the sort of Gang of Four thing. And what what was it I was trying to do? And then by that time, you get damaged goods. And so I think there's three tracks on that first EP. There's damaged goods and there's anthrax and there's arm light rifle. And of course, arm light rifle to me sounds Mm. not particularly clever, but weirdly it's a sort of, you get people shouting out for it gigs even today. You know, it's a, um, one of those things that people got into. And so what I'm saying really is on that EP, you've got a mixture of things. There's a couple of things which, you know, mm. I'm still extremely happy with to this day and something which never gets played anymore. I'm thinking 
then from a lyrical content, uh, tracks like Not Great Men, yeah. this is kind of a, almost a realism to that lyrics. You're kind of holding a mirror up to people about how things are rather than, as opposed to, say, a fantasy land. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite that's an interesting way of putting it, actually. Yeah. Yeah, no, I like you know, the idea of holding up a mirror to people. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things that, you know, they're going for is sort of a primarily accurately observational and descriptive. It's sort of musing on the thought that basically, the you know, history is made by ordinary people. Things that change society are made by real people and not hugely by the great and the good. I mean, musically, it's, it's, it's my absolute favourite track from the first album. The, that kind of, the way, the simplicity and the energy and the funkiness of the way the guitar, bass and drums are put together is kind of textbook going forward in a way. But, you know, it's that thing of everything sitting next to each other. You know, each beat of the drum part is carefully placed and, you know, and the simple guitar is carefully placed around that and the bass and, and the words and the whole thing is put together like a, uh, dare I say it, a Swiss watch. But, um, and then, and, and then of course, lyrically, it's just, it's a, it's a crystallization of that idea I was just talking about reduced down to its kind of most simple essence. You know, I mean, it uses this phrase, you know, the, the books at home, uh, of course, that, that sort of, slightly redundant now because you would get your information like that from the internet now but um you know it's kind of like this rather quaint idea that people have books lying around at home mm. with um ideology expressed as history yeah so uh, that's that's a favorite
as well as kind of holding a, a mirror up, this this for me, there's a bit of element of, of challenge there so for, for people to kind of think about concepts that are, are taken as read but are actually not necessarily so. So tracks like Natural's Not In It uh, was kind of... Mm. I, I might say that it sort of plays on the idea that some people may think that something's natural when actually it's kind of a, a, a man-made yeah. idea. Hundred percent. Yeah, that's exactly what it's saying. Yeah, and so it sort of skirts around political ideas, skirts around some religious ideas, and and uh, I mean that was a bit, you know, a little bit of a theme of of entertainment. The first album it was a, the idea that that it's natural for women to be at home doing the cooking and bearing children. That that, that is that's a natural state of affairs, and that's. What what you know, and and then when you when you question that, the only real argument is well, it's natural. Uh, that's that's the way it is. It's natural, hmm. you know. And the riposte to that is, well, it's not natural. It's something we've made that, that we've constructed that we've made up, either because it's convenient or because through religion and the exercise of power that we can keep women in their place. For example. So men can get on with it. It is. It is basically about that idea. That there's this kind of each lyric is, each line is a very short, snappy, little, mm. little observation, and um, mm. and it covers a lot of ground and bits of the Bible, bits of this and that, all against this ferocious kind of rhythmic drumbeat and the, you know the funky drumbeat. And the driving, very simple driving guitar that just never stops, just relentless going through the whole thing. And of course, that was used, when was it? Long, quite a long time ago, but Xbox used that as their, for their global advertising campaign, which actually earned a few bob, which is nice for once. But the lyrics have a, a kind of almost a, yeah. an added resonance, given the concept of computer games. Uh, absolutely, yeah. So, you know, the problem of leisure, what to do for pleasure, is how it starts which I thought was, was great. We got some stick for that, actually, funnily enough. One or two people thought that that was in some way immoral, that we should allow that song to be used in advertising.
The next track is from uh, Solid Gold and uh, What We All Want. I've read that you, you went to Abbey Road for, to record that album. Yeah, that's right. We um, uh, Jimmy Douglas was producing with us. And, uh, yeah, we were in Abbey Road in uh, Studio 2, I think it was. That's, um, yeah, the sort of Beatles one, the huge, huge room. Yeah, it's good. Uh, yeah, and, and actually that record, uh, I think I sort of prefer that record to Entertainment. There are some of us out there that think it's mm. a better record. I think it, I think it sa- sort of sounds better, yeah. That's where we did it. I guess recording at Abbey Road doesn't do any harm to the, the, the album sonically. No, no, no. It's it's going to... They've got a few microphones in there, and, and they all work. Mm. I think, it, you know, we'd, we'd gone just a little bit further down the kind of groove path, uh, and it was, you know, definitely uh, rhythmically... Yeah, yeah, it was going further down that road. Uh, and, it, you know, it's a slightly... It's the, I mean, in my opinion, it's a better sounding record and it's also a darker sounding record.
and John continue to kind of um, add new concepts into into sort of the, the lyrical genre that you wouldn't necessarily that the other groups wouldn't wouldn't go near. So tracks like Why Fairy, there's there's elements of sort of feminism in there. Yeah, yeah, there is. It's um, <clears throat> very much so. Um, I mean, I wrote that song, and it, it's um, what what happened was um, we were about to go on tour in America. Uh, and I found this pamphlet uh, somewhere in the Leeds University, I think. I found this fairly, yeah, I found this pamphlet that was called Why Theory. And I'd love to find out more about that pamphlet. I can't remember exactly who it was that had, was responsible for it, but it was <clears throat> it was just kind of feminist theory. Uh, it was a bit of feminist theory, and it was about what, what's the point of theory. So... I don't know. How, I, I've got no idea how much of that, if any, came straight out of that. Uh, or I mean, but uh, it was definitely inspiration. And I kind of wrote the words for that song, possibly pinching the odd phrase from that pamphlet while I was uh, on on tour in America before Abbey Road. And then when we got in Abbey Road, we uh, we recorded it. And it's kind of got a kind of faintly sort of reggae-ish drum beat, kind of. You know, and and my kind of semi-spoken lyrics, and I think that you know the key to that song is uh, the opening line, which is uh, "We've all got opinions. Where do they come from?" <coughs> which is what what the whole song's about. This is 
seems like a natural fact. Each day seems like a natural fact. Each day seems like a natural fact. Each day seems like a natural fact. And you mentioned with Solid Gold, you're kind of starting to go even further down that, that groove path. And then with tracks like I Love a Man in a Uniform, it kind of further goes down there. And it, there's almost kind of a, yeah. a pop yeah. element to that that track. I, I think that to a certain extent, there was a bit of experimentation on my part, which was let's just see what happens if we, if, you know, let me do a pop experiment here. Contrary to what a lot of people believed, I actually do have. I think both. I think John King and myself had a great affection for pop music. You know, I, I, I definitely did not turn my nose up at up as it. So I think to a certain extent, with that song, was what happens if I actually kind of <clears throat> go out of my way to make it sort of uh, poptastic, mm. uh, which is you know what I what, what I kind of did there. So, unlike a lot of the songs on Entertainment or or uh, Solid Gold, it was a case of trying to, I guess, to a certain extent, more conventional sort of uh, chord changes and sort of, you know, kind of exploring what was, is essentially a more pop kind of structure. And, and I worked that beat out. Uh, the, the 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 man in uniform beat, which which is what it kind of starts with, um, which, which is what the, what the whole song is built from. Mm. So you know, I had that beat and I did those chords on top, and then um, we worked on the lyrics and John sang on top of it. And of course, it was um, uh, in classic Gang of Four fashion um, when it was released. It was um, sailing up the charts and. Um, and then the Falklands happened and the task force went in mm. and the record was officially banned from the BBC. And they sent around a memo saying, do not play this song. We are expecting casualties. This will be an inappropriate song. And the memo went around the entire BBC and it was never played again. But it became a, a bit of a bit of a hit in, in the US. Yeah, it was um, to my very pleasant surprise. It became a massive um, gay club hit and... Uh, Mm. Huge in uh, San Francisco.
and then there was a period uh, where where you rested that the the gang of four well i mean gang of four name for about a decade i think to a certain extent um there's been times when when john king wasn't sure if he wanted to do it or not uh, if he wanted to commit to it or not you know and um, so there were some mm. periods where gang of four didn't didn't really exist um and it was during those periods when i would be off producing other people so you know whether it was the red hot chili peppers or, or whether it was the stranglers or yeah um any number of people that um you know i just go off and produce them so i'd i had this kind of i've had this kind of dual existence you know where sometimes i'm going for and sometimes i'm andy gill producer and occasionally at the same time yeah i mean there's, there's so many of your productions that uh one of the more interesting uh, ones were, were with uh, Michael Hutchins, and and you were you, you co-wrote much of his uh, album, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah, that's right. How how did the songwriting process for that, for example, vary to Gang of Four? Um, many similarities in a way, and um, basically, he got me to come down to his uh, his place in the south of France. So we just shipped over. A lot of my basic equipment, computers and amps and guitars, basses, or you know, all the stuff. And uh, we used to use um, ADAT machines back then, digital format. Uh, and yeah, and I would just um, work on my own for a bit. I'd, oh, you know, like coming out with drum parts, um, play guitar parts on it, you know, do all that kind of stuff, and then. Um, Michael would kind of wander in and out, going, "Yeah, really like that," or "Don't like that." Or... So we, I'd get ideas worked up. We kind of had this kind of makeshift studio in one of the bedrooms, and he'd sit. And then when it would come to singing, he'd just sit on the bed, and and we just do take after take, and he'd um, uh, just do loads of vocals on it. And we just then I'd comp them together, and then we do more, and just keep going, you know. So um, we worked pretty hard, and. Um, uh, he was a hard worker. You knew you had to get things done. You had to uh, imply yourself. Words cannot express, you know, Michael passing away. And uh, I've read that you, you got Bono to help on uh, Slide Away to kind of... Yeah. Was it finishing the track off or was it just to kind of... It was it was finishing the track off because uh, what happened was um, V2... I mean, it was, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a classic thing. So, you know, Michael had, Michael had been paying for everything on the record. Mm. And his plan was when the record was, you know, completely finished, he then put it with whatever label he, he wanted to or yeah. or whoever seemed the most appropriate. So at the point when he died, it, the, nobody, mm. nobody owned that. He did. But of course, you know, the moment he died, there was all kinds of legal wrangling going on. You know, you can imagine if it had been owned by a label at that time, they would have got it out pretty sharpish. Mm. But that wasn't the case. So there was a long period of time uh, where nothing was being done with it. And then, as far as I remember, um, Richard Branson said, oh, yeah, I want, I want this on uh, the V2 label. And uh, at that point, the A&R guy at uh, V2 said, okay, Andy, can you please give me everything you've got, finished or unfinished or whatever, and let me check it. Let me listen to everything. So the, the first thing he came back with he said, "God, that slide away track's amazing. You've got to finish that off. It's incredible." And it's like, well, slight problem there, which is 
I've basically got Michael singing a chorus and like half a verse. I'm not quite sure what how I'm going to do that. Mm. I said, "Oh, you you got to finish it somehow," and, and I just thought, "Well, maybe it, you know, maybe Bono would be up for it for for, for doing a sort of a, a second vocal on it." And uh, long story short, I mean, he, yeah, basically he was. Mm. So I wrote a load of words. Bono wrote some words. Uh, I wrote a new whole new section in the middle of the song. You know, so a lot of it was just you know after the event, as it were, and uh, and and then Bono came around and and sang on it, and he sang the bits that he thought that he could do, and he sang the sang the tune that I thought he should do, and we, you know, and then I did like days and days of editing and cussing, and uh, you know, and we ended up with Slide Away, and it's um, yeah, I mean, it's really sad, but I mean, it's it's kind of my favourite track of the record, really.
around this period or perhaps a little bit before you and John got back together for shrink wrapped and um well actually I mean it, that was just that was before that yeah what happened what happened was in you know 94 95 I wrote shrink wrapped and recorded it and I was mixing it beginning of the summer of 95 and John while you know while I was basically finishing it off John's announced that he wasn't going to be doing any more music and he was going to get into the advertising business which kind of left me slightly stunned because I thought we were about to do some touring so that happened then and then Mm. so then he was off and probably I mean very fortuitously probably about within a week I got a phone call from Michael Hutchins saying, Andy, do you want to come and write a, a record with me? Which um, was, I guess, entirely coincidental and, as I say, fortuitous for me. That, that's, that's how it happened. The song I Parade Myself from Shrink Rap is a track yeah. that you have can kind of continue to play live periodically. Yeah, play it frequently. Yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of that track. I think it's superb, yeah.
to close, our final track is uh, Torido from your new album, Happy Now. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that, the track, and uh, what's behind it? Yeah. I think in the, in, it's funny, actually, that we just mentioned that directly after I parade myself, because mm. to me, they sort of, they, in a way, they kind of belong in the same bag, because it is kind of an overwhelming male ego slightly psychotic and self-obsessed and sort of fundamentally insecure and yet full of bravado so those are the similarities i think um and and, and of course the you know it's based on that the crete myth of uh the bull come man mm. but 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 set in it you know it's it's there's um you know, see me drive in my car, I'm breaking all the rules, you know, it, which is, so it's kind of takes it up to date right now, you know, um, someone who wants you to look at them as they show off, you know, but with, with Toreador, the character kind of mm. totally recognizes that he's half beast and wants to be killed so it's a jaunty little happy tune. <laughs> um, it's, it's kind of one of my favourite songs on the record. Yeah. You're yeah. going across the world for the next few weeks before coming back to the UK. And uh, Are you up in Liverpool and then back down to London at a, a show at the Borderline in April? Yeah, I mean, the next. what happened was, uh, you might be able to hear it in my croaky voice, but I've, mm. I've had qu- quite a serious uh, chest infection. Uh, and we had to postpone our Australian trip uh, and our Chinese and our Japanese trip. Um, so the whole thing has been moved mm. to the autumn. So the next thing now is Liverpool, right. uh, Six Music Festival, um, which is, I think, it's the last Sunday of this month. And then after that, we've got uh, our London gig here, mm. uh, Line. Looking forward, uh, you know, you, you mentioned at, at the start when we were talking about the way, way of uh, making music now in terms of uh, being, getting up early and, and then being productive. Yeah. Is, that, is that kind of what you kind of uh, envision, envision for the, the future now is, is that you've got that mm. that model of working and uh, you'll continue to kind of yeah. Yeah. make music yeah. with, you know, you've got Jayla now who's, I assume, very committed to yeah. Gang of Four and you're able to kind of move forward. Yes, Um yeah, definitely. I found that way of working to be the way to go. Um, and what what happened was we, let's see, by the time we got to last, I don't know, July uh, last year, um, I had 17 tracks finished, 10, of which I picked 10 uh, to go on Happy Now. Um, so there's a whole bunch of songs which are already done, and I've got a whole bunch of songs which I'm are sort of in process. So I'll definitely be looking at, you know, in the coming coming weeks and months, I'll definitely be looking at finishing off some, you know, some of those and seeing what I have. That's fantastic, Andy. Thank you so much for your time. It's it's great to talk about your new album, Happy Now. Uh, tracks that we've got to look forward to over the next uh, year or so as well as looking back on the yeah. you know the great uh, body of work that that, yeah. that you've left us uh, over the last 40 years yeah well thank you very much very good talking to you all right it's my pleasure thanks so much thanks a lot all right then bye cheers bye
listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's been almost 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page 
thank you very much plus any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too thank you